0: Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read downloadable PDF on Five Strategies to Amplify Your Client's Response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. I'm very excited and privileged to welcome Kath Temple to this rapid change conversation. Kath is a success and happiness psychologist and someone who her clients refer to as the Jedi. As a gifted change agent and sought after mindset and executive coach, mentor and trainer, she's trained tens of thousands of people and young people all over the world. She combines a variety of skills ranging from solution-focused psychotherapy, NLP, hypnosis, EFT, plus much more besides. Her impressive list of accolades and accomplishments are too many to name here. But one thing I wanted to mention was that when you talk to her, she has a real palpable passion for creating a positive change in this world. So it really does give me a huge amount of pleasure to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Kath. Thank
1: you. Good to be here.
0: Great to have you and um, really just want to jump straight in if if we can and can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do in your own words and how you got started?
1: Well I'm known as the success and happiness psychologist and I work with business leaders across the world, uh, head teachers and teachers, senior leaders in schools, um, also doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists. Health professionals, senior sisters, and so on in health, Mm -hmm. and with sports people um, from footballers, rugby players, Olympians, and Paralympians um, as well. Really love what I do and make a huge difference to people's outcomes in terms of success and getting them over the blocks to success as well. And uh, how did I start? I began uh, in the 1970s um, uh, in media and PR for the energy industries for Teneco um, and then went to a subsidiary of Alcan, set up their company newspaper, um, lost the will to live while working there (laughs) and applied to the nuclear industry and worked at BNFL Sellafield for almost nine years in a variety of roles, represented them on television and radio, um, worked freelance for Radio Cumbria Uh, had my own radio show in the nuclear industry called Newsline, did the kind of things that you're doing, Mm -hmm. but with uh, Mrs. Thatcher and Michael Heseltine and Neil Kinnock, um, even showed the Yorkshire miners around at the height of the miners' strike, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and so on. Absolutely loved it, great role. Um, Then went to Suffolk Education, Norfolk Education, the Department for Education, and I was appointed to the Special Needs and Disability Tribunal. And I, I didn't work for some years after... My third daughter was born and was on life support um, at three weeks old. She was fine when she was born. And I studied psychology after that, so retrained as a psychologist uh, in my 30s. And then 99, being flirted with outrageously by a man in Norfolk County Council who said to me, "Uh, I'm an NLP master. And I said, I can tell you're trying to impress me, but I have no idea what... (laughs) He is. And he laughed. And the following day, I was at a conference in London on mental health. I'd run mental health groups uh, in Suffolk. And somebody was talking about this NLP again. And I became very curious. I don't believe in coincidences. And they were talking about uh, who to train with. And I turned around and said, I've been listening to your conversation for a while. So talk to me a bit more. And um, And they said, well, if you want to be able to do it, Go train with uh, Richard Bandler and Paul McKenna, and I rang, followed through. Everything's in the follow through. Uh, talked to Shelley, who was Paul's manager at the time, and she loved me on the phone. She says, "Oh, I think you make a great member of our team. Um, come and do some work with us. We'll get Paul to come say hello." Uh, and I went and did some training with them, and then assisted for many years. So that was kind of how I got started in the NLP and Rapid Change world. But I had run mental health a mental health group for about two years. Uh, for Suffolk education. And I had really great results because when I took it over, people had been atrophying in that group for far too long. And it was really the last step out of the mental health system. We were preparing people to reintegrate with their community, their world and the world of work. And I noticed that the group had spectacularly failed in that. Um, And I could see that there was a kind of dependency being built on that group. And I did change the way that it worked. quite substantially. And I wish I'd known NLP then. I didn't know NLP then, but I was very solutions focused without knowing the solutions focused approach, really. Mm. Um, i got just very practical and created more links with people outside of the group than they had inside so that they were more uh, willing to leave and so on and not do mini suicide attempts as they had done in the past so that they got to stay in the group. Um, but it was interesting to have a real insight into mental health work and how dependency is created and how we can uh, give people a, a whole identity around mental health, which is not helpful to them.
0: So, so something that you mentioned, um, actually, when, when we did the rapid fire round. And by the way, for those people who are listening to this on the RapidChange.works website, you'll be able to see uh, Kath's rapid fire round. You mentioned when I asked you actually that the very first question was... Um, what's the worst advice being given out in the world of change work? You talked about that counselling approaches uh, for things like PTSD was just ineffective or, or didn't work. Um, could you elaborate more on that?
1: I, often GPs will refer people for counselling uh, when they have depression, uh, anxiety or even trauma. So abuse, being maybe abused physically or sexually, emotionally. And it actually re-traumatises people. When you look at some of the research... And conventional counselling, person-centred counselling, psychodynamic counselling and so on can actually make depression worse because you're reinforcing the neural pathways to all of the problem states. Mm. And frankly, people are very good at probleming. What they're not good at is solutioning, of knowing what they want instead of what they have. Um, so, so there's plenty of research that shows that those approaches um, to change actually can make depression worse. They could never impact trauma because trauma is not in the talking brain. Trauma is held in the amygdala. Um, there are receptors that grow there when someone uh, is uh, tra- suffered a trauma. Um, not everybody uh, has that happen to them. The criteria to store trauma in the in the amygdala is inescapability, the criteria of inescapability. Uh, if the brain believes that, it will clock a visual auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory template, they're known as AMPA receptors, and there they'll stay, and that amygdala will continuously pattern-match to any or all of those receptors um, to try and keep someone safe so you cannot talk trauma out of the amygdala you need um, different techniques and there are only five that will work to get it out of there one is nlp the rewind technique Um, one is tft thought field therapy another is eft which is the baby of tft if you like hmm. um, another is emdr eye movement desensitization reprocessing technique and the other is of course havening um known as amygdala depotentiation therapy
0: but havening's a little catchier hey
1: havening <laughs> 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 it's an interesting name isn't it um, so, so uh,
0: if, if you're working with psychiatrists they prefer amygdala depotentiation I, of therapy. of course of course they do <laughs> why is it kath that um Given that there are, you know, change workers like ourselves out there who are seeing change happen rapidly and dealing effectively with PTSD, uh, getting rid of trauma fairly swiftly, why is it that that the medical professions and doctors, GPs are still referring people down the counselling type routes?
1: There's a lot of dogma and the the counselling movement is a powerful movement. So there's that um, they're very good at getting into the, the the journals, the medical journals, the psychiatric journals, and so on. And in a way, some of the rapid change movement, NLP, and so on, has there's been an arrogance there of uh, saying, well, NLP is only built on what works, so it works, and we know it works. But I actually think research is a is a healthy thing of um, you know putting people into um, double-blind studies and so on and checking the outcomes can be pretty powerful. Um, And EFT recognized that, and there was a huge study of 29,000 people uh, in South America done by David Feinstein and Steve Andrada. uh, And they they found quite incredible results that um, when EFT was compared with CBT, combined with drug therapy, um, EFT, the average um, treatment was three sessions versus six months of CBT, and psychotropic drugs, Uh, and uh, it was something like 93% of the EFTs showed significant improvement versus... 63 percent of the cbt and drug group but remember they had been treated for six whole months um, versus three sessions of eft so those that that kind of research is pretty impressive and ron rudin with havening amygdala depotentiation therapy um again there's some cool research um coming out of that world as well so clinicians need some convincing is all and research always helps um, and uh, we've got some interesting projects uh, potentially coming up either this year or next year uh, in the offing and I would like some university researchers attached to those projects so that they can see the results that we're getting.
0: Because you, you seem to be very uh, a very driven person in terms of, as I mentioned in the introduction, creating positive change and from what you're saying is that you see research and, and brass stamping or uh, brass placking uh, the stuff that we're doing, is an important part of all that?
1: Um, I am a driven person in that I like to make my life count in the best way that I can, in ways that are meaningful to me, that align with my value system. So using my gift skills and talents to make a bigger difference in the world feels absolutely right to me. And I've I've created the Happiness Foundation, which is my non-profit, which does work in the community um, uh, and and makes a massive difference. One of our projects is Phoenix Rising, which is where we work with people who've been uh, traumatized. So so some of our serving and ex-servicemen with PTSD our policemen, firemen uh, and so on. But also children, young people and adults who've disclosed sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. We've made a massive difference um, in that area. Uh, and as I say, there's more work to be done on that. Um, we're looking, uh, working with football authorities on the football abuse scandal and so on to um, to, sh- to shift things for those people who've been abused in football, but not just in football, in gymnastics and swimming and so on, that um, it's a bigger problem than, than most people realise in sport.
0: So I, I, I saw and I, I think I mentioned to you that I, I, I'd watched your TEDx talk on the Great Wall of China and i I thought you spoke beautifully around the theme of love and how love was uh, just such a fundamental uh, need and getting us to reflect on this idea of what what would the world be like with more love um, I was wondering whether you could share with some of our listeners some of uh, i don 't know the key standout uh, research uh, that made up that talk, and particularly I was fascinated by the research that had been done by uh, looking at nurses. Who were only physiologically fulfilling the needs of babies?
1: Some fascinating pieces of work around that, and it, um, a lot of it was pulled together through Daniel Goldman's work at Harvard University on emotional intelligence of the difference that coherent states make. So it's just a different way of saying effectively what our Richard Bandler has said for many years, that your state matters. Mm -hmm. The state you're in affects other people. So the evidence shows that um, we have interpersonal limbic regulation. So our limbic systems are open systems, and we're very much affected by the people around us. So someone who's in a coherent state, their heart rhythms shift and change and they positively impact the people around them whereas somebody in a very negative state in an angry state in a depressed state their heart has incoherent rhythms which also affects people so we can either lift people up just by the state that we're in or we can bring them down by the state that we were in and schneider and bowen's research from 1995 showed that when nurses were depressed on cardiac care units, that the death rate in their wards was four times higher than on comparable units. Now, that's an astonishing piece of research, and there's many other pieces of research that back that up. Mm. So not that the nurses are killing anyone directly, but in a way, our mood affects the people that are around us. So the most vulnerable systems, if you like, are people who are ill, um and, and also children so again i do a lot of work in education depressed teachers anxious teachers and so on are having an impact on all of their students and so if we can work with teachers so that they have more control over their emotions and ways of influencing and managing the children in their care, some with significant um, uh, needs, then we can make a massive difference in education as well. So I I run an LP for teachers training. But one of the most memorable pieces was in a pupil referral unit for children three to eight-year-old. And um, so this was children who were excluded from nurseries and primary schools. Uh, with significant behavioural issues, some of them pre verbal autistic children. And the head teacher, a very innovative, great leader, put in for the whole school. Um, NLP, full NLP practitioner training and we actually did full EFT practitioner training as well because EFT is a great way for children who cannot talk um, f- uh, to self-soothe. Self-soothing children will be the most successful children um, so the research shows in longitudinal studies but what a massive difference we made in that uh, pupil referral unit it was called First Base and in the June we put the training in, in the NLP training in in January, the EFT training in, at Easter, and in the June they had an Ofsted and the Ofsted, I've read thousands of Ofsted reports through my work on the Special Needs and Disability Tribunal for the government. And I've never seen words uh, like I saw in that Ofsted report because they said they were moved by the practices in the school. And the, there were significant differences in the educational outcomes for those children. And Dr. Paul Tosey from Surrey University, who set up um, the NLP research group, um, invited me to, um, to be part of that Uh, committee and part of the very first international conference for NLP and one of my students within the school did her master's in education and presented the research about the difference the NLP training I'd done for them in the school had made to educational outcomes for children. So very well received, very cool piece of research and uh, for sure it made a massive difference. So it can make a massive difference in education, in health um, and so on. Um, But the talk, there was so many things in the talk. Mm -hmm. I always remember, um, uh, and I can't remember where I got this from. I think it might have been Richard or it might have been in my psychology. Uh, uh, Virginia Satir uh, talked about we need four hugs a day to survive and 12 to thrive. And those sorts of um, sayings came from research that showed where nurses were um, uh, told that for some babies who were unwanted at birth, they just had to give them physical care, which was what Abraham Maslow said was all that human beings need. That was his base level needs. Um, and the, for the uh, the other half of the group of children who were unwanted at birth, the nurses were allowed to touch them, to stroke them, to rock them, to sing to them, and to give them human care, to give them emotional care. And they had to stop the experiment because the babies in the first group of the physical care only began to die failure to thrive they call it in medical circles and again an astonishing piece of research that shows as human beings we need very much more than physical care we need emotional care Um, lots of research showing that where parents touch their children's faces a lot the baby's faces those babies brains grow bigger And those babies' brains also grow more mirror neurons. Mirror neurons, you'll know from your NLP, Mm -hmm. actually help us to be better citizens. Because if you're just about to do an awful thing to someone, if you have lots of mirror neurons, you get to feel what that would feel like if it was done to you. And so it creates better citizens, uh, better communities and so on. So affection and love massively matters. There's a great book for those of you who are interested in this kind of stuff. It's by Sue Gerhardt called Why Love Matters. And she shows in that book the brain scans of um, babies who – Uh, more neglected at birth, um, touched rather less, had rather less emotional care, and the babies whose faces were touched a lot. Now, that that ties into havening, actually, because havening is one of the psychosensory therapies, as is EFT and TFT. So they involve touch. And um, there are some parts of the body that are very... Um, rich in serotonin producers so across the face um, across the shoulders down the arms and across the palms um, about 1500 receptors on the palms very little serotonin comes off the back of the hands and um, so with havening um, when you've activated the neural pathways to the problems which it takes about 30 40 seconds or so um, you then push serotonin tsunami waves down through all of those pathways using Havening Touch, uh, the amygdala depotentiation therapy. Mm. And it also has the effect of putting the brain into point two of a delta wave as well. So pretty powerful therapy, and uh, the psychos- one of the psychosensory therapists. Love matters massively. And your state massive, massively matters. So it's back to what the Buddha always said about your state of beingness matters. Who are you being as you're doing
0: Without meaning to be provocative, I sometimes worry, um, and I don't know whether it's the state of uh, some NLP trainings that are out there, that people reduce NLP to a very mechanistic approach. They've got a phobia, well step one close your eyes step two and it's just a, a following instructions protocol pattern what i don't see or hear as much is the way that you're talking about it which is how to include this idea of love and emotion into it more than just these ideas of you know if you want them to feel something go there first and even that if presented in the wrong way could appear to be mechanistic
1: mm-hmm I think, I mean, my my teacher, my my great teacher was, of course, Richard Bandler. And Richard teaches NLP in a very holistic way. Uh, And he he makes it far less mechanistic than I know some other schools of NLP do. So I think the whole richness is kept with his teachings because of his stories, uh, those rich stories that overlay so many things um, inside of our hearts and minds, and um, so he was probably my greatest influence, for sure, within the NLP world by far. But we also add our own unique flavour and spice to whatever it is that we do. And um, and my trainings are very holistic trainings. And we look at... Um, At NLP, not in a mechanistic way. So yes, you have to teach the the tools and techniques and so on. But you can use everything. Needs to be contextualized. Um, And um, part of the way that I teach as well is that people need to own NLP for themselves to bring their spice, their flavour, their personality, their style. Nobody does it in the same way. And I, I often will compare the different styles of such as Richard. Uh, of John grinder, Robert dilts worked, worked with both of them too uh uh John Laval uh, michael breen and and my style. We're all very different, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm. um We teach the same things but not in the same way. um we bring our own experiences and our own stories in.
0: So, what do you think if we if we just move tracks a second? what do you think are the ch- are there challenges about working with people rapidly um and specifically, I know when we've spoken before we've we've touched upon things like you know i mean EFT has its own word as you pointed out for it, which is the apex problem
1: the the, the the apex problem is really that people can't quite believe that change can happen, not all people, but some people can't quite believe that change can happen that fast. So they'll attribute it to other things. Um, they must have been ready to change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, there's a readiness element in everything, but also a great therapist can help people to be ready by the the way that the brain's primed and so on. Um, and I, in our introductions, we can say that rapid change is possible and share some stories about um, how we've how how people have changed in a very short space of time, even significant issues. Um, you know, in, in my work, I get to work with people with serious diseases, sometimes people with, who've had a stroke and so on. And you can make a massive difference to people's health um, for sure. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's less of a problem if you frame it in the right kinds of ways and you share some stories about change. And in a way, Milton did that, is my friend John's stories were Mm. seeding the possibility of change and the strategy for change in telling the story of his friend John. Of course, and if he'd had 20,000 friend Johns, they wouldn't have had as many problems as his friend John, who always seemed to have the same problem as every one of his clients. And he found that when he, and then he, and off he goes into the land of installing strategies. Uh,
0: And I I sometimes wonder whether there's a sense of if it's very easy to get rid of, is it not seeming to say to them, "Well, hey, guess what? You've you've been an idiot for twenty-five years. It was that easy." So they have to have a need to feel like they it was a it was a big problem for them.
1: I, I, I let me let me share a story with you, and and I you'll you'll like it, and I'm sure other people will find it interesting. I had a, a chap, a rang rang me about uh, maybe about two thousand and nine, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. And he was in um, in the town here uh, on holiday, and he'd had a bad back, had gone into the chiropractors, and he found a copy of my magazine, Happiness Magazine. And he's, he rang me up to say that um, my article, It's an Inside Job, was the best thing he'd ever read on depression in his life. And he said he'd had depression for 40 years. I mean, that's, that's a lifetime, isn't it? 40 years um, of depression. And, and he said he'd spent thousands on psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and nobody had made a difference. And he said, but I rather think that you might be able to. And I said, I'm absolutely certain that I can. And, uh, and he said, so you see people one-on-one. I said, I do. And he said, then I'll sail down. He had a, a beautiful yacht and he sailed down. But in my conversation with him, I could tell that he was um, open because he'd made the phone call, mm. but some skepticism that, that you were able to shift 40 years' worth of depression. And I shared with him a metaphor and I said, it doesn't matter how long a room has been dark, when you put the light on, the room is lit. It doesn't matter for how long it's been dark, and he got that, Um that made a difference to um, to his thinking but i could tell in the conversation some people um, if you think about convincer styles in nlp some people are automatic convincers some people are over time convincers some people are never to be convinced and he was <laughs> an over time convincer i would have said and so normally we would deal I would deal with depression in one breakthrough session um, yeah. of about 3 hours so it's not it's not a 1 hour session we would we would shift and change some things massively and massively uh, shift that cortisol serotonin balance um and and put people on a 21 day happiness challenge as well but i could tell that he he, he was thinking surely no surely you can't sort it out in one session so i did it in two sessions but it was the same length of time i just when he when he sailed down he sailed down in the morning um and i said let's let's book you in for about four o'clock um, and I worked with him uh, for a couple of hours uh, and then I got him to, to come back the next morning stayed overnight in his yacht um, come back the next morning um, for the next session but it really it was one session it was what I would have done in one session I just split it over two because mm-hmm. that fitted with his I guess, beliefs in yeah. some way so you work with what the client brings as well and adjust, adjust your sales to use a, a yachting metaphor there um, but yeah and it, it shifted massively. And I said, you know, you beat my world record. I said the, the, the previous person who'd had depression the longest uh, was was a, a mere twenty years. He was laughing. Uh, <laughs> you, you can affect change rapidly and markedly, and the results can be really long lasting.
0: Because I, th- I think that's the thing, isn't it? That you know, whilst I have a a, a thing that I want to say, hey, guess what? Rapid change is possible. It's also going to last. Um, I don't want people to think that this is kind of a click your fingers someone's better but it was only just for show hmm. that there, there is a real substantial uh, change and it's lasting. what's it what, what sort of follow-up process do you have
1: uh we follow through we do generally a three months and a six months follow through
0: with mm-hmm.
1: uh, people and um and just check on on progress and people tend to keep in touch they share their good news with the yeah. um, things that are happening in their lives it's a hugely fulfilling hugely satisfying um yeah love i um, love what i do really enjoy it i remember working with uh, a mom brought two of her sons to me and both of them had asperger's syndrome um and one was being bullied and the other one had problems with food so not not uncommon things with either um uh, of of those boys um struggling in in with their teenage years really um and again you can affect massive change i remember richard saying that people told him that uh, people with schizophrenia couldn't be hypnotized but he didn't know so he did it anyways um and okay. i'm told that, that uh, children with autism or asperger's uh, couldn't be hypnotized oh how far from the truth that is because they are so hypnotizable. Um, Oh, we did some beautiful work uh, with bo- both of the boys. And the, the youngest one had an issue. He was only eating potatoes, rice, drinking milk, um, and he would have bread as well. And his mum says he's only having um, carbs. And I said, well, that's not quite true. I said, he's actually only eating and drinking white things. That's the That was the pattern, um, uh, something about interrupting that pattern. And I remember um, uh, doing some anchoring work with him. And I talked about where where was the place where you felt really really relaxed and calm? And he went into a trance almost straight away. Mm. And he went, "Oh, Mum," he said, "It was Cornwall, wasn't it?" And uh, he was in Cornwall in a second, and we were able to anchor that. And I said, and what about the place where you were really excited and really curious and you couldn't wait to see the next thing? And he he went into another little eyes, went up, went into another trance. Mom, he said it was Disney Disney World, wasn't it? And she said, oh, you loved it. I said, what was your favorite ride? And he said, Space Mountain. I went, wow, I can remember Space Mountain. And I said, what was the first thing you went on at Disney World? And he said, the Carousel. I said oh yes I as me and my children went on that too that was our first ride I said I said imagine and they might say that children with autism asperger just don't have imagination but actually if you if you anchor it to something real they will be able to extrapolate from there and I said imagine you go on that carousel and then the carousel stops and you jump off and then you get back on and you go on again and then it stops and you get off and you get back on again And you've got a five-day hopper pass, and every day, all day, you're on that carousel. And he went, oh, it would be really boring. And I said, yes, but you do that every day with your food. What (laughs) if there's space mountains of tastes that you haven't tried yet? What if there's glorious rock and roller coasters of taste that you haven't tried yet? And he got it. He actually got that. And we we did a little thing whereby we introduced a different color each week. Um, so began with the reds, and I said, "You won't like every red, but you'll like some of them, I'm sure." And we got him to um, to tolerate the idea, so anchored the the Cornwall experience, the relaxation response, um, to, uh, to to try some food, and to do two rounds of EFT finger tapping, which would also bring some calm in, and gives him a timing. Kind of a thing, and if he didn't like the taste, he was allowed to spit it out in a kitchen roll. Um, but actually, over a period of just a few weeks, he then had a rainbow on his plate, and that's what we were aiming for: rainbow foods, um, more freshness, and so on, coming in to his life, and more space mountain tastes in his mouth as well. So that ability to be able to tolerate change is a glorious thing for a child without autism or Asperger's,
0: mm. and
1: um, we achieved that.
0: No so it's, it's interesting though I mean first of all it, it, it sounds like it was some beautiful work that you did, especially the way you utilized the things that he was excited by uh, to build a you know a metaphor that he could he could totally tap into the other thing that I think I think is interesting you weren't sure um, whether he could imagine, but you know why not try just because he's been given this label how How useful are labels?
1: I know some uh, that, that was a whole debate in special needs, of course, because mm. parents are often looking for a label so that they can better understand and perhaps better get um, a package of support for their child. But it doesn't always help. I remember um, a lady I knew at the age of prob- probably about 46 was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and she was devastated by it. And I said, but you're exactly the same person I always knew and that everyone else has always known and the frame around you is a limiting one and um don't let it limit you that you know it might give you some insight as to why you feel the way you do about some things but it doesn't say who you are who you are is much greater than a label um you know she's an amazing uh, grandmother she's an amazing mother she's an amazing sister an amazing friend um an amazing artist as well and the label didn't serve her at all mm. Mm. And the same for children as well. It doesn't always serve them, though parents often seek out a label. And I understand why that is.
0: Well, I, I think my concern with it is sometimes that if, if someone comes with a label, it kind of I, – I worry that some people might not then watch them and look at the patterns they exhibit because mm-hmm. they're too focused on what they should be seeing.
1: I agree. And there was that very famous experiment where um, uh, psychologists got themselves admitted to mental hospital mm. in, um, some, some decades ago, the 60s, I think. And they presented with all of the symptoms of schizophrenia were dutifully admitted with the label of schizophrenic. And they, the experiment was that as soon as they got in, they, were, they meant, were meant to behave entirely normally. And they said all of the doctors and nurses saw everything through the framework Um, and label of schizophrenia that when they were writing notes um, they were saying paranoidly writing notes and the only people who recognised there was (laughs) nothing wrong with them were the other patients the other patients all knew they were alright but the doctors and the nurses didn't so a a label can massively restrict people's points of view and if you think about neurological levels and the level of identity it's a huge level it's the one right below spirituality a great place to do work with people the bigger the chunk the bigger the change Um, and if you can change their identity you can often change most things about everything that they do because behavior can align with an identity as well so it can sometimes restrict repertoires of behaviors etc
0: tell me about one of your responses in the rapid fire round uh, which was about the pharmaceutical industry
1: I've, I've worked for um, a pharmaceutical company. I did some work for Bristol-Myers Squibb, one of the Fortune 50 companies. Hmm. And um, I taught psychiatrists for them. So they would put on a free weekend for psychiatrists, and I would be on the agenda. Um, and uh, I found just hungry thirsty for what it was that I had to share and um, uh, and of course behind me the indirect sales were all of their drugs and uh, logos and uh, and so on all around the room Um, one of the things that a friend of mine told me a wonderful friend uh, Jill Edwards who was a clinical psychologist operating out of Ambleside in my homeland and heartland of the Lake District um, sadly died a lovely Jill but her brother. Um, worked for BBC Panorama and he did um, a Panorama programme called Dying for Drugs and I did see the clip and I only half listened to the clip and I thought it was perhaps about Colombian cocaine or something like that but it wasn't about that at all it was about the pharmaceutical industry and how no one was looking for a cure but they were looking for a drug that people would be on for the rest of their lives and I found that quite fascinating and I also did some work. Very privileged. I've had some amazing teachers. I've sought out some great teachers in my life. One of them was Professor Candice Pert, and Candice won the Nobel Prize for discovering the opiate receptors in the brain. And Candice, when she was professor at Georgetown University in Washington, did all of the research into the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And she said to us as a group, "I'll choose my words very carefully." Says Candice, a diva in the science world. She she appeared on the film What the Bleep. I don't know if you ever saw that. Some of your some of your listeners might have seen that. It it
0: sounds like an interesting uh, thing to link to on the site. uh, What the bleep's
1: brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, And uh, some great teachers in that, too. I've worked with a lot of them. Um, uh, She said, don't touch them with a barge pole. She said the first class of antidepressants, which were poisons, um, were actually less harmful than the SSRIs. I found that very interesting. And she said that in America, to get a drug on the market... Um, required only two controlled studies that showed a 5% above placebo effect. Now, all of your listeners will know about the placebo effect the placebo effect is a, uh, is where the mind produces um, exactly the drugs that it needs because they're being given a nothing pill. So uh, the brain's primed with the thought of a uh, a cure or uh, some uplift in their condition and the mind does it for them. Um, and so every placebo is the best tested drug, for want of a better word, on the market because every drug's tested against a placebo. And Candice said they did have two control studies that showed um, – a 5% above placebo uh, effect of those SSRIs. And she says, but let's just say that you could have 19 controlled studies that showed a negative effect. She said, and we did. But we did have two, and the drugs are all on the market. Now, in the Happiness Foundation, we set it up um, initially. We do more than this now, but the, the its initial raison d'être was um, to combat uh, depression and anxiety, the two biggest mental illnesses which account for about eighty seven percent of all mental illness across the world, so oh, I thought if we can make an impact in those we 'll be doing pretty good and um, and we had some NHS funding and ran courses. In doctor's surgeries, in GP surgeries, um, breaking the cycle of depression was one of them, and overcoming, overcoming anxiety was another of them that we got funding for. And so you see lots of people coming through, all of them on antidepressants, and all of them still depressed. Yeah. Uh, so you, you kind of get the, the, uh, the feeling that antidepressants are not really that effective, because I never worked with anybody who was on them who wasn't still depressed. And sometimes we expect a pill will change our lives. But Bruce Lipton, another one of my great teachers, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who was professor of biology at Stanford University, wrote the great book, The Biology of Belief. And Bruce said something very memorable. He said, you need a pill for every pill you take. Well, that's absolutely true. The Happiness Foundation, um, I started in 2007 following the death of my younger brother, John, a wonderful, glorious man. He was the community relations manager at UMIST, University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology. And um, and he was a writer as well. And uh, uh, he died at the age of 42. His postmortem showed that he died of nothing, sudden adult death syndrome. Um, but I think prescription medication played a part in all of that. Uh, he had um, gone to the doctors with a bad back, and they put him on tramadol. Tramadol is in the morphine family, don't like it much. Um, it's uh, in, in the clients I've worked with, it's been a personality-altering drug. Um, but they also put him on um, an antidepressant. Now, he didn't go with depression, he went with a bad back. Now, this is not an uncommon practice because, as I say, I've done a lot of work within the NHS. um, So, this is not an uncommon story. They then put him on a second antidepressant. So, just get your fingers out and start counting. So, there's Tramadol, an antidepressant, a second antidepressant, and then a third. To overcome the side effects of the antidepressants, because they often give you tremors and uh, anxiety uh, or feeling of anxiety, they put him on beta blockers, occasionally diazepam. And then to overcome the side effects of that cocktail of six drugs now, they put him on a seventh drug, which was anti-epilepsy medication. I mean, that's an astonishing thing. Seven things there when a bad back was all that he went with. And um, this is not an uncommon story. I thought that it was a very unusual story. But again, working within GP surgeries, a lot of the people that I worked with on those uh, breaking the cycle of depression courses were on the same cocktail of drugs. How astonishing is that? And in one of my um, international presentations, the organizer of the event said to me, Kath, I think you can help that man's son. That, that man over there, and he pointed him out. And I said, oh, what well, for what reason do you say that? And he said, well, his son's tried to commit suicide twice this year. I thought, oh, my goodness. He says he's only 27. So I went over to the man and I said, um, the organiser uh, says he, he believes I can help your boy. Um, and he start, the man cried. And he said, oh, it's been hellish. Um, he said he's tried to kill himself twice this year. And I said, well, here's my phone number. Tell him to give me a call uh, when you get home. And he says, it's here. I says, what do you mean here in the city or here out at the event? And he says, no, he's here. is is over there. And he pointed him out. He says, but don't tell him what I've said to you. Um, so I said, OK. So then you have to look for an inn. Mm. So I went, to, went across to sit with him and uh, another young man and they were sitting on a table swinging their legs a good old nlp i started swinging mine said hello to them and um uh, when it was my turn to go and present i asked him if he would uh, record it on my phone and he said he would so when i finished he uh, uh, he passed me the phone said some nice things about the presentation and i said i wish my brother had been here to see that and he said, oh, could he not get the time off work? I said, well, sadly, he died. And he says, oh, gosh. He says, what did he die with? I said, well, his post-mortem showed he died of nothing. I says, but I think he died of something. And I said, I think the something was prescription medication. And um, he gave me a tell. And um, I could tell by his, his pupils that he was on something because the pupils were dilated. And... Um, uh and he said oh what was he what was he on and I told him the story that I've just shared with you I said well they put him on tramadol and an antidepressant and gave me a tell so I know he's on one and I said they put him on a second I got another tell so we know he's on two um Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they put him on a third. And he gave me a tell again. So he's on three. I said, and to overcome the side effects of them. And he, I said, they put him on. And he said, beta blockers. I said, that's right. And I said, and they put him on. And he said, diazepam. I says, that's right. I says, and to overcome the side effects of all of those. I said, they put him on. And he said, anti-epilepsy medication. I said, how do you know that? Now, you and I both know how he knew that. But mm. he didn't know what I knew. And he said, because that's what I'm on. And I said, Wow. I said, an amazing cocktail of drugs. I said, tell me something. I said, are you still depressed? And he said, I am. He says, I tried, tried to kill myself twice this year. I said, wow. I said, antidepressants are really effective, aren't they? And he laughed. And he said, I never thought about it like that. I said, well, there isn't anybody that I've ever worked with that isn't on them and is not still depressed. And, um, and I said, tell me something. I said, how long have you been depressed? And he said, about two years. And I said, what was happening two years ago that made depression a very appropriate response to those life circumstances? And he said, he said, I wasn't getting along with my girlfriend and I hated my job. And I said, so as you think about it now, you're taking a whole bunch of medications to keep you in exactly the same situation that's causing the problem in the first place, just knocking you a bit more unconscious. And I said, do you know what antidepressants are made of? And he said, no. I said, they're made of fluoride. And I said, Prozac's official name is fluoroxetine. And I said, fluoride is what Hitler put in the waters of Germany in the 1930s to make people conform rather more. And fluoride actually calcifies your pineal gland, sometimes known as the third eye, your ability to see further. And I really made him think. And I also talked about the Native American Indians, that they believe depression is a loss of spirit, a spiritual crisis, so a loss of meaning in life and it's really calling someone to review and reevaluate their lives and to create change but by taking antidepressants most people keep their life the same and just take drugs to numb and dumb themselves down to be able to cope with it it's a very challenging statement but it is one based on a lot of experience over a lot of years now working with people with depression and um even just telling the story um, and even just asking those questions made a big difference to that young man's life because he began to review things in a different way and began to create some changes. So an interesting story. Um, And that's, that's some of the work that we do within the happiness foundation.
0: It's amazing. And thank you so much, Kath, for sharing that really, really, really um, quite, quite phenomenal. Uh, story, and I'm, I hope uh, listeners get as much out of it as I have um, as well. Just then, um, moving to a slightly more mundane <laughs> uh, note, um, are there any books that you can recommend if people are interested in change work that they should go out uh, and uh, devour, gobble up as fast as they possibly can?
1: Ah, uh, this. Oh, I have a house full of books. Um, I love my books. One of the one of the books that I've, I've loved is the one I mentioned in your rapid-fire session, The Genie in Your Genes by Dr. Dawson Church. Great book. Um, uh, it's about the field of epigenetics, but for all you change agents, it gives some great visualizations of um things that's helped people to overcome things like cancer um a variety of degenerative illnesses some brilliant brilliant research in there i love um joe griffin and ivan tyrrell's book the human givens yeah. um, another great book i love bruce lipton's the biology of belief um i love some of dr david hamilton's uh, books about kindness um, and so on I love robert holden's book success intelligence and so on and of course our wonderful richard bandler's books magic in action transformations using your brain for a change those sorts of uh, yeah uh, Uh, of nlp love all of those too and i like tad james's timelines books uh book as well um that's a a really cool one use timelines for a lot of things um i found in the work that i do with kids with behavioral problems um none of them and the the work i do with um young offenders and and um ex-offenders as well they none of them have ever had a future timeline the same with addicts their timeline goes to the next high to the next fix which makes sense of why people do antisocial things because they're not seeing the 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 future mapped out in their representations they're just not there Mm. Um, so even doing just future timeline work mapping out consequences looking at choices and consequences makes the most massive um difference um to young people so i love all of the the timeline stuff um uh, but those those will be some great places to start. That's for sure.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. And it, look, if people, if people are, are loving what you have to say and they want to get in touch and find out more about you or get in touch somehow, how can they do that? Where should they go?
1: Um, they can go to www.lifelonglearningcompany.com Oh no, I nearly stuttered there. <laughs> <to laughs> lifelonglearningcompany.com and to the happinessfoundation.co.uk. So they'll see different flavours of the kinds of work that I do on both of those websites, Happiness Foundation, uh, community-based work, um, the non-profit and lifelonglearningcompany.com com um, is the more commercial work. Uh, the, the more profitable business, working with corporates, with health, education and
0: sports. Fantastic. And when we first talked about you coming on and, and joining this rapid change conversation, is there anything that you thought it would be really nice to share with people, but that I just haven't asked directly?
1: I think I think we've covered quite a bit, really, um, in our conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed um, chatting with people um, and hopefully making them think uh in, In many ways. Um, No, I just say that um, the the only thing that I haven't mentioned is um, working with um, somebody uh, in the public eye had been abused uh, Mm -hmm. and he'd had 18 years worth of therapy, 18 years worth of twice weekly therapy, including stays at the Priory. But it was talking therapy. And as we said at the very beginning, uh, talking is never going to get trauma out. And to give him a contrast before we present it to some very powerful bodies in the UK, um, I said, let's do just a two-hour session so that you have a comparison of what you've had um, with what I'm about to to, to share with you. And um, the most massive difference Um, in that young man um, in those two hours, Um, very, very powerful, a mix of Havening, NLP and EFT, um, uh, uh, a powerhouse of a session. We went to court the following day, BBC, ITV, Al Jazeera's Dispatches programme, The Guardian, The Mail, The Telegraph, journalists were there. And one of them came over and said, uh, my God, what's happened to you? He says, you look very different. And he said, she's happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and he says, what did you do? I said, well, I, says, I just did a um, a session for two hours to, to to give him a contrast over the therapy he'd received. And he said, well, he says, it's worked wonderfully well. He says, did you know that he ran screaming out of the court twice the last time he was here? I said, I didn't know that. And he said, well, you look very different now. Um, and, and he has been very different um, as well. You can, you can create powerful, rapid change that is very long-lasting. Um, and when AMPA receptors are removed from that amygdala, they are removed. They've gone. There's no coming back for them. Uh, and how powerful and wonderful is that? Same thing happens when you cure a phobia as well. These things are infinitely testable, um, and they massively change people's lives. So hopefully we've made lots of people think today, our lovely Howard. And, uh, lovely love to talk to some people if they're uh, if they're interested in what I have to say.
0: Fantastic. Kath, thank, thank you so much again. And uh, guess what? If you're listening and you want to comment and get involved in the conversation, underneath the episode on the rapidchange.works website, you can. Uh, and we encourage our listeners to, to get involved uh, as well. Um, Kath, thanks again. And uh, yeah, look forward to being in touch soon. Take care. Lots of love. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.